Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Okay, should we look at the theme of the Kingdom of God? <clears throat> and we'll take a break in... Um, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> you don't have anything else to do today, do you? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, okay, let's, let's start the Kingdom of God and then we'll take a break uh, in a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> it's fine, we're going to get through it. Great. So the kingdom of God is a major theme in the Gospels, actually particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, barely mentioned at all in John's Gospel, uh, and you can ask Tom why that is uh, next month. Um, and Tom, you can ask me in the break if you want. Um, but uh, the, the kingdom of God is a key theme right the way through the Gospels. Jesus talks about it all the time. Um, but it's not a theme that starts with the Gospels. It's not like Jesus turned up and said it and people like, say what? Like kingdom? Like the, the kingdom runs right the way through the Bible in various different forms. And so if you go right the way back to the beginning uh, with Eden, essentially I think you have a picture of the kingdom of God. It doesn't use this language um, because it was pre-kingship. Um, but I think essentially what you see is what life looks like when God reigns. Um, God is in charge and everything works really well. There is harmony between man and God, between man and woman and all humanity, between man and creation that we were given to care for. Like there's, hum- there's harmony at every level when God is reigning. And we're actually told that mankind was made in God's image. Now that word image <coughs> probably means a whole load of things, and this is like a massively debated point in scholarship. Um, but one of the things I think it definitely refers to is actually this idea of kingship. So in the ancient world, you would have um, statues like this. Um, so this is a statue uh, made by King Shalmaneser III, um, who was, I think, an Assyrian king. And, uh, and this was described as his image. And basically the idea was that when a king uh, took over a new land, they would erect an image that represented themselves so that people who were travelling through the lands would see it and go, oh, okay, I understand whose rule I'm coming under. Right, so this represented King Shalmaneser. So if you're traveling through wherever and you arrive at this border and you see this, you go, okay, I understand. I am coming now under the kingdom, therefore under the rule and reign of this particular person. That was his image. That's what the image represented. So when humans are created in the image of God, I think it means a whole load of things. And there's loads we could say about that. But I think one of the things it would have meant, particularly to a non-Jewish audience, was, okay, when you see someone who bears the image of the king, you recognize that I am coming under the rule and reign of the God that they represent and serve. Mm. So I think there's something beautiful there um, about what we were created to do and be. And these image bearers were told to rule, to exercise dominion over the creatures of the earth, to fill the earth and subdue it, to work and serve, to tend and keep this world. And actually the language of ruling and subduing, um, it can sound like basically crush and use, use up the earth for our own good. And that is, of course, what humanity is doing um, to 
with pretty dreadful effects. But that's not what God was asking us to do. He was asking us to care for, to serve, to tend creation, to bring out the best in it. And actually the language that is used there, I'm going to get onto my hobby horse because the environment is a big passion of mine. But, like, um, but the language that is used there is actually the language that is then given to the priests for serving and protecting and caring for the tabernacle and the temple. This is what we were meant to do as image bearers. And the promise there that was that in God's kingdom, you will, like we would have this access to eternal life through this tree. But of course, along comes a serpent, long story short, and says, oh, you should eat from this tree and get this sort of knowledge of good and evil. And, and it, oh, you've been told you'll die, but no, 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 you won't die. Actually, what's going to happen is you're going to become like God. And so Adam and Eve, they take the fruit trying to become like God. The irony is they already were like God. They were made in his image in relationship with him. And so they didn't actually become more like God. They became less like God because the kingdom was shattered. They decided to usurp authority, essentially say, I want my kingdom, my rule, my way. And actually they handed over the authority of the kingdom to the serpent, which takes us back to Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and that battle there where yeah, the, serp- oh, the devil says, I can give you the authority of the kingdoms. And Jesus doesn't say, you don't have the authority. Like there's this assumption that he sort of does because in this moment, the kingdom was somehow sort of transferred and there's loads of nuance to bring in that. But essentially what I'm saying is Eden is a picture of what rule and reign, the rule and reign, the kingdom of God is meant to look like and also what happens when we give up the rule and reign to other creatures. But then fast forward right through the scriptures and what we find is time and time again God promises a kingdom. So he establishes this kingdom through all sorts of ups and downs of people demanding a king and God saying you don't really want a king and they're like no no we want one like the other nations and God say well this is ultimately a rejection of me um, and all that sort of stuff that happens in Samuel. But essentially God does promise a kingdom that will come from David's line to Samuel 7 that we've already looked at. And then essentially from that point on they're looking ahead to a particular king and they have plenty of kings all of whom screw up to different degrees of like yeah severity um it's pretty awful um but there is a promise that there will come a king who will be good and pure and perfect and who will put the world to rights and if i were to sum up the gospel of the old testament is essentially isaiah 52 uh, 7 to 8 which is um, proclaiming to Israel that your God reigns. How beautiful on the mountains are the one who comes bearing good news, who proclaims peace to Zion and says, your God reigns. The gospel of the Old Testament is one is coming who is going to bring peace and ultimate good news. And then the prophets unpack what that person is going to be like. And, and Isaiah I mean, it's not Christmas, so I won't read it, but like Isaiah 9, he grapples with this child who's going to be born, who will be a mighty God and a prince of peace. The Hebrew is shalom. Shalom being this peace, this wholeness. It's not just the absence of war. It's, it's wholeness at every level. Full restoration. And one is going to come who is going to do that. But then weirdly, Isaiah 53 says that somehow it's through this Messiah's death that the kingdom is going to be established. And I don't know quite what Isaiah thought was going on there, but now, looking back from Jesus, we understand that it was his death and resurrection that has brought about this kingdom. And Daniel has this beautiful picture uh, of all the nations of the world, all the kingdoms of the world being defeated by this tiny little stone <laughs> that comes and smashes all the other kingdoms and then becomes a mountain which is itself an indestructible kingdom. And actually, just back to 2 Samuel 7, one of the bits, I don't know what David would have thought when God said this. He said, oh, this kingdom, the kingdom of this son to come from you, his kingdom will never end. Like every king, every queen dies at some point. Every kingdom 
comes to an end, like their rule comes to an end, and also the kingdom in itself generally passes as another kingdom defeats it. Like, how was this son's kingdom never going to come to an end? It wasn't just that he would establish something that would exist long after his own death, <laughs> but actually we find out that he doesn't die. He is, in fact, the eternal son of God, but that's taking us places I don't need to go today. So essentially what I'm saying is this. The idea of the kingdom of God is woven right throughout scripture. From Eden right through the, the stories of the kings, the longings of the prophets and so when Jesus turns up and he says the kingdom is here or actually before him, John the Baptist says repent for the kingdom of God is here. Like People had an idea of the kingdom already. This wasn't a new idea. It was an idea that was confronting stuff that they already believed and longed for. So Matthew 3 opens, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then this theme of the kingdom is, it, it features frequently in Jesus' teaching. So in Matthew, he talks about the kingdom of God five times and the kingdom of heaven 32 times, and essentially means the same thing. Um, Mark 14 times, Luke 32 times, John only twice. Um, but as I say, I, I think, well, I think John uses different language to express the same thing. So the kingdom was a major part of what Jesus talked about and what he did. But this wasn't a new idea. So if you scroll to the scroll, <laughs> turn to or scroll uh, to the next page, different groups of people would have heard and received Jesus' message different ways, based on what they already believed about the kingdom. So there were, I mean, there were various factions of Judaism, but here are just three: the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And essentially, each of these groups uh, would have had an idea of the kingdom. They were longing for the kingdom. They were longing for God to send his Messiah and put the world to rights. But they had very different ideas of what that would look like and how it would work. So, broad brushstrokes. The Pharisees, their kingdom plan, and this is from N.T. Wright, um, it's a brilliant New Testament scholar with an exceptional beard, um, <laughs> also lives in Oxford. I saw him ride past on a bicycle a couple of months ago, which was a glorious moment. There you go. Um, and then my friend traced him down, and we actually ended up having a conversation to him, which was slightly awkward, but there you go, irrelevant. Uh, he says, The Pharisees' kingdom plan, in line with plenty of earlier Jewish aims and ideals, was to intensify observance of the Jewish law, the Torah. That, they believed, would create the conditions for God to act as he had promised, to judge the pagans who were oppressing Israel and to liberate his people. So that is, the Pharisees believe, if we could just keep the law as best as we possibly could, then God will send his Messiah, because he's seen that we've you know, done a good job, and then he'll put the world to rights. Which helps you to understand why the Pharisees were so annoyed when Jesus turns up and he says, the kingdom is here, and then he seems to break the law, or interpret it differently to them, or, or they were worried he was taking people away from the law with different teaching. You can see why they actually struggled with Jesus' proclamation about the kingdom. And the Pharisees are often put across as the bad guys, and I think it's actually way more nuanced than that. Um, they had this desire for people to keep the law because they believed, truly believed, that that was important. And it was. They were just going about it the wrong way. The Zealots, a second group, uh, they believed that the kingdom of God needed to be advanced by a demonstration of power. So if people were serious about the kingdom, they would be willing to fight and die for it. And so, uh, 164 BC, we get the Maccabean Revolution, and these were essentially Zealots who said, okay, if the kingdom's going to come, it's going to come by force. So let's kill our enemies and try and take it back. And that didn't end well. And so clearly when Jesus turns up and he says, the kingdom's at hand, they're like, yes, dust off the swords. And Jesus said, put away your swords. <laughs> this is going to be a different kingdom. And so that would have annoyed them in different, for different reasons in different ways. A third group, the Essenes. Um, 
Again, N.T. Wright says, Believing that others had lost sight of the truth and convinced of their special status, they enacted the exile God's people were experiencing by separating themselves and living as exiled people. Um, Basically, they moved outside the city and they lived in the wilderness uh, as a prophetic act, demonstrating by their wilderness existence the fact that the promises of restoration and redemption are yet to be fulfilled. Their task was to stay separate in prayer and purity. And essentially the idea here was, well, the people of God were back in the land. They weren't technically in exile, but they weren't also living in blessing. They were still being ruled over by, uh, by uh, opposing forces. And so the idea was essentially they were in the land, but still living in exile. And that message wasn't getting through to people. And so the Essenes said, well, we're going to demonstrate that through the way that we live. And so as a prophetic statement, they moved outside the city. They lived in the wilderness saying, this is what it's like. This is what Israel is like right now. And so they kept themselves separate in prayer and purity as a sort of symbol uh, of that but then they died out in the wilderness so that didn't really work either but, but so when Jesus goes to the cities and he goes into Jerusalem he still has, seems to have a purpose for Jerusalem that must have jarred with them as well and so essentially what I want you to be thinking is that everyone had ideas of what the kingdom was going to be like and Jesus affirms some of those ideas and actually challenges some of those ideas in a way that probably meant that no one was very happy with him <laughs> And yet Jesus proclaimed again and again through his words and his deeds, the kingdom is here. So what was the kingdom according to Jesus? And I'll just finish this slide and then we'll have a break. The kingdom was not a geographical place. Um, For many of these people, they did associate the kingdom with Israel, uh, particularly probably with Jerusalem as the capital. Um, and they believed, of course, that Israel would be dominant over other nations. And so there was this idea of the expanding kingdom. But it was an idea related to a geographical place for many people. That wasn't the case with Jesus. When he talked about the kingdom, uh, he wasn't just focused on one place. Rather, it was to do with the, the rule and reign of God everywhere. <laughs> um, I think is it. I think it's... Uh, D.A. Carson says, he, he defines it as the kingdominion of God. In, in essence, saying anywhere where God's rule and reign is like that's that's the kingdom so it's not a geographical place uh, it's not heaven um, so actually when Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven some people get the idea that this is about us going off to heaven and here we live on the earth but the kingdom of heaven's up there that's not what's going on in Matthew at all um, actually I think Matthew is because he is a good Jewish writer he's trying to avoid using the word the name of God because it's so precious and so he actually talks about the kingdom of heaven as a like a substitute for God's own name. Um, but he doesn't mean that it's somewhere that we get to go to when we die. Rather, it's something we do get to experience here and now. Because, as this beautiful chart shows us, uh, and I'm sure that when Jesus was pe- through, you know, teaching people, he drew this in the sand. Um, <laughs> um, essentially, Jesus' understanding of the kingdom is this. He, the king, has come. He has broken into this world. He has had his first coming. And you can experience that through his teachings, through the healings, through the signs and wonders that he does, which we'll come to in a moment. The kingdom is at hand. It's among you. It's very close. You can reach out. You can touch it. You can experience it in your body, in your lives right now because the king has come. And then he, of course, dies. He rises again. He ascends to heaven. He tells us to continue in this world proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, We now live in this period where actually the kingdom has not come in full. We're not yet here in new creation. Jesus promises that he will come back a second time. And at that point, he will establish the new kingdom fully. 
there will be a new creation, like a new Eden, where everything that is lost will be restored to God uh, and to us. So we will have full harmony in our relationship with God, with one another, and with creation itself. So Jesus is talking about the kingdom that is sort of here, but also still to come. And Revelation 11 says this, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, 11.15 this is, um, and there were loud voices in heaven. This is looking at a future day. It says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That's what happens at this point, at Jesus' second coming. Which means that right now, we live in this period here where we think of the kingdom as being both now and not yet. That is, Jesus has broken in, is bringing his freedom and healing and restoration, and we can experience some of it, but that's just a foretaste of what's going to happen when he comes back and makes this world new. And so that means we live in this period where the kingdom is all around us. We get to proclaim the message of the kingdom and demonstrate it to people, but also there is a lot of heartache and pain as we wait for the coming kingdom to come in full. And so here in this space, Jesus... He proclaimed the message himself, but he also commissioned the disciples to continue proclaiming the message of the kingdom. And in Matthew 10, he said this. He sends them out. He says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely you have received, freely give. And what I like from that is the combination of two things. Proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. So with your words, tell people the kingdom has come here. And then show them through your actions as well, by releasing people, by healing people, by doing good for people. It's a combination of words and deeds, which we actually see perfectly in Jesus' own life and ministry. And we'll look at that in a moment. Jesus' words and Jesus' deeds about the kingdom. So that, I think, is a whistle-stop tour of the whole Bible. <laughs> um, you don't need to come for the rest of the year now. Um, but that, that, I think, sets up the idea of the kingdom, which was already an idea for people, and Jesus' teaching was deeply challenging in those three ways and many more as well. Uh, but in a minute, we will look at some of the things Jesus actually said and did about the kingdom. But first, let's get some coffee. Um, you all right with just 10 minutes? Is that okay? Okay, so uh, come back at 22, and we'll crack on. <coughs> Make another uh, start again. <laughs> Great. Okay, we are moving very quick. I'm aware of that. Um, uh, thank you for bearing with me. Um, there's so much to say. There's <laughs> uh, always so much to say about the gospel. But uh, I think honing in on the kingdom is is probably quite helpful. And so what I hope we'll do now is just. That was quite, oh, what was on my last slide was quite theoretical. Um, I hope to now ground it through some of Jesus' words and some of Jesus' deeds. Um, but any questions before I kind of get into that? No? Is this making sense? Great. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I hope so. Um, great, okay. 
Well, let's think about the kingdom of God. And like I said, Jesus sent the disciples out to do essentially what he did, which is proclaim the message through your words, demonstrate it through deeds. Um, and so we're going to look at uh, stories of the kingdom and signs of the kingdom. And there's so much more we could unpack, uh, but that's where I kind of want to go with the rest of the time that we have. So Jesus told stories um, known as parables. And uh, actually in the Synoptic Gospels, I don't think there are any, no, there are no parables in John's Gospel, are there? None. No, I don't think so. Um, but they're largely confined to the, well, probably entirely confined to the Synoptic Gospels. And they keep, seem to be key things that Jesus told um, as learning methods, as ways of communicating. And um, so what I want to do is just give us a few thoughts about the parables. We clearly won't look at all of them. Um, I've got a book at home called The Complete Guide to the Parables and it's missing two, which is quite annoying. So like, there are lots of Gospels. <laughs> it's really irritating. Um, but there are so many. And actually sometimes it's hard to tell which is a parable and which isn't. And like, they, they come up in different forms, in different uh, Gospels. Um, and so, yeah, there's loads we could say about that. But let me give you a few sort of hints about the parables uh, and a few ways of interpreting them. Um, I think... Oh, yeah, I won't unpack this too much, but I think basically Christians get the parables wrong all the time. <laughs> Except me, of course. <laughs> um, no, no, me included. Like, there's some parables I have no idea what to do with. Um, but often I think what people do with the parables is they go, oh, how does this apply to us today? And don't think about whether it would have made sense to the original hearers. Um, and so I think people are often in danger of doing one or two errors. One of two errors. Uh, either they unpack the parables in a way that makes no sense to its original context uh, and what people would have heard and what Jesus would have meant and what it would have sounded like to the average sort of Joe Jew walking around and you know, listening to Jesus. Uh, that's one error. Or the opposite error is to focus entirely on them uh, in their original context, which is fascinating. Actually, I think that's the best place to start. Um, but then go, and that's irrelevant to us today because we now live in a different age. And, and I think there's got to be a way of bridging the gap. And I I think some of those parables it's easier to do than others. Um, but let me give you just a few sort of hints at uh, how to read the parables. And I'm still sort of working this out a little bit myself um, by my forthcoming book. I'm not writing a book. Maybe one day. Um, but let me give you four thoughts about the parables, firstly. Um, and they all begin with C. There we go. Because I'm a wonderful preacher. So, um, the, firstly, the parables are communicative. Um, and I think what I mean by that is this. They're not just nice stories. They're not just like uh, just a little story you share to warm up a crowd or something like that. They communicate. Uh, they are a core message or a core way that Jesus communicated his message. So, their themes are likely to correspond to the overall themes of Jesus' teaching. So, when Jesus teaches explicitly, uh, this is what the law means, or you've heard it said and I say to you, like, there are particular things that he communicates there and the parables are not a nice add-on they correspond to that so I think if we're looking at a parable and thinking what does this mean chances are it's going to mean the other sorts of things that Jesus talked about in his more formal teaching um, and I think the key theme that Jesus talked about was the kingdom of God so I think we should expect that the parables essentially are ways of communicating that message about the kingdom of God rule of thumb every parable you read it's about the kingdom of God. You know that kind of classic old school, sort of uh, Sunday school thing, you know, what's the answer to this? Jesus. Like, what's the parable about? The kingdom of God. Like, that will get you, that's 
basically my book. <laughs> it's one page long. <laughs> every parable is... I'll pad it out. Um, but like that, 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 every parable is essentially about the kingdom of God. And N.T. Wright makes this brilliant point that the story which can be evoked by the phrase the kingdom of God may well be present even though the phrase itself is absent. So by, by, what, by that he means that um, in, in many accounts Jesus said the kingdom of God is like and that's obvious. But other times he doesn't. But he does use other elements like um, you know, someone went away and then they came back and uh, they were looking at what had been done in their absence and how people had um, used particular resources, which is all to do with rule and reign and kingship. Right? So this idea of the kingdom is there in every parable, I would say, whether the phrase the kingdom of God is used or not. So first point, they are communicative, not just entertaining stories. Secondly, they are cultural, which is that they were written to particular people at a particular time. And so we do need to work quite hard to understand uh, when it talks about things like farming methods or sowing. Um, I mean, I'm not a farmer anyway, um, but I grew up in Kent and there were farms around and I've observed farmers. But I can't therefore assume that what I have observed in farming is the same as sort of first century Palestinian farming. Like we have to understand certain things about the culture um, that was being spoken into, and there's lots that we could say about that. Um, you know, the parable of the sower, for example, um, it's actually, it actually just seems like really bad farming. Like, scatter the seed everywhere, and they churn up the ground, and loads of it ends up there and there and just dies. And you're like, what? That, that's bad farming. Surely you get a combine harvester, and you, or, or, or like one of those big machines that digs holes. I don't know. But like you, you bring different ideas of farming to it. But actually, if you understand that in first century Palestine, sowing precedes ploughing, uh, then that changes the way you read the parable. So I kind of read it and think, why didn't the sower only sow on the prepared soil? But the point is, actually, they sow everywhere and then churn up the soil. And so what looks like it's on rocky ground actually might get churned up. And so it's actually a parable more about the soils and what happens to them rather than the actual seeds, if you see what I mean. Um, I haven't answered what that parable is about, but I'm just saying that the, the assumptions you bring to it uh, affect how you read it. So they are cultural, and you may need to look at commentaries or... Um, study guides or ask Tom or something like that to find out what's going on in those parables. They're not written to us, but they're written for us, is a, probably a good phrase to bear in mind. Thirdly, they're confrontational. Uh, that is, they were not just nice stories. They were stories that, I mean, they're stories that got Jesus killed. Um, we won't get to talk about Jesus' death particularly today, but I would say that um, two of the main themes, things that led to his death were his action in the temple and the parable of the tenants. He told a story and it got him killed, um, which is quite radical, isn't it? And I think one of the reasons for that is that Jesus tells stories that people knew and then he twists them in surprising ways. So actually, we've already talked about um, Daniel 7, which is not a parable, but the same principle applies, that Jesus essentially, standing before the high priest, uh, says, hey, remember that courtroom scene in Daniel 7? Um, let's think about where we are in that scene right now, because I'm in the place of the guy on the cloud and you're in the place of the beast that's about to be destroyed and like he turns it on its head in a really confrontational way and Jesus does that time and again with the parables um I got a six-year-old daughter and when we read stories um which I mean she just wants the same stories over and over and over and I find it amusing every now and then just to change one of the details of the stories just to see if she's listening and she goes no daddy that's not how the story goes and uh, and, and I think there's something of that in Jesus hearers like he tells a story that's familiar oh I recognize that that's in the old testament or that's a story that my mum told me or or our religious leaders told and then he twists it a little bit in a way that shocks them and makes them go oh gosh you see this story really differently to me well 
if you're putting it that way, then am I in danger of being in the place of the enemy? Because I always thought I was the good guy in this story. And so his stories are confrontational in that sense. And sometimes people heard his stories and they literally wanted to kill him. Um, and fortunately, they are cryptic. And we won't unpack this, but... Um, it's worth looking at Mark chapter 4, which seems to contradict itself because um, in verses 11 to 12, it says that Jesus tells, the, tells parables or teaches in parables so that you will see but not perceive. That is, like he tells them parables so that they won't understand. And then in verse 33, it says he was speaking in parables so they were able to hear it. It's like, what is it? Like, were you trying to confuse people or trying to make it clear for people? And I think it's both. Because actually the power of the parables is that they essentially draw out whatever is already going on in your heart. So, um, oh, I've got an illustration but I need to ditch it because it's about the Queen. And, and uh, so I need a new one. But like, this is not quite right. But uh, the same sun, there's an old sort of proverb, the same sun... Uh, that melts the ice, hardens the ground. Um, and I think that's a picture of what the parables do, in a sense. The same story can have two very different effects on you, uh, depending on the trajectory of your heart already. So if you're already inclined towards being open to Jesus, I think it can have this warming, positive effect. If your heart is already hard, the sun is like, it like beats down on you and it hardens you in the trajectory that you're already heading on. See what I mean? Which is why people can hear the same parables and some people go, this is such good news, and other people say, I want to kill this guy. They're cryptic, and they're deliberately cryptic because they're confrontational. Loads we could say on all of that. Um, but therefore, let's think about how we actually read a parable. And then we will read three, probably, together. Three very short ones. So, in approaching the parables, uh, just four sort of um, rules of thumb. Um, and in, actually, in the first year of this course, I do a day on reading the Bible morning I'm reading the Bible and hermeneutics and so this is essentially an application of that if you were here last year um, firstly look for one main point uh, often a parable will really only have one basic truth in mind uh, and it can be tempting just to look at everything and go, oh does that represent something that represents something maybe it's about this 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 and this and we can spiral off into a million different ideas where I think generally it has one main point so don't try and make a parable stand on all four legs as it were, which I always find a really weird phrase because that's literally what a table does, but, but there we go. Um, uh, they generally have one meaning, and I would put it to you, that meaning is always to do with the kingdom. kingdom of God. Right, right, you've got it, wonderful. Great, so look for one main point. Look at the wider setting. Ask questions like, um, why did Jesus tell the parable? Can we tell from, I mean, sometimes it literally says, Jesus said this in order to, that's a great hint. Sometimes it doesn't, but you can tell from how his hearers interpreted it or what's around it. So sometimes Jesus might do something and then tell a parable. You think, ah, there's a link between them. And it might not be that he literally did and said those things together, but the author has put them together to help you to understand they they interpret one another um, look at its place in Jesus ministry so how does that parable fit with other themes of Jesus ministry in particular to do with the kingdom and then fourthly look at the use of Old Testament imagery so sometimes the parables do uh, have moments in fact often where they they take an idea that is rooted in the Old Testament and unpack it in a particular way and so if there is a symbol of something in a parable like a tree or seed or um, a sheep or whatever it happens to be 
like, don't just think, what do those things mean to me? Think, what do they mean within the context of the Old Testament? Go back to the Old Testament, and there I think you will find out how to uh, interpret those symbols. Ask yourself, does this story sound familiar in any way? Is there an Old Testament story that this may be reinforcing or riffing off or, or completely turning on its head? Um, those, I think, are helpful ways to look at the parables. So I was going to look at three, and I was going to get us into groups, but I wonder if it's better for us just to do it together, live. Um, is that all right? Yeah. Okay, so let's look at three, and all of them are in Matthew 13. So turn to Matthew 13. <clears throat> and here what we have in Matthew 13 is a, a group of parables um, put together. And it comes within a sort of block of Jesus' teaching, um, but also surrounded by some other sort of miracles and signs that he has done. And if you just look over Matthew 13, you can see there's all sorts of stuff. Parable of the sower, uh, discussion of the purpose of the parables. He explains the parable of the sower. Uh, another parable about the weeds, which is somehow related. Mustard and leaven. Uh, then he explains the parable of the weeds. Um, then a whole series of little parables that we'll look at in the moment. And then the result is that Jesus is rejected. So verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Uh, and then he taught in the synagogue. And then he's rejected there. So there's, that's sort of what's going on in this block of teaching. But let's look at three parables in this section. So could someone read out Matthew 13, 31 to 32? <clears throat> Mm. It was at another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in branches. <coughs> Fantastic. Great. Let me unpack this one, and then we'll, I'll ask you some questions to the others. <coughs> Because um, I think this is a bit of a tricky one. I mean, it sounds quite obvious. It sounds like it's basically saying, I was going to ask you, what do you think? But the reason I'm not doing that is because I don't want to then do a gotcha, you know, kind of thing. But like the way I've always heard this is uh, the kingdom is something really tiny that grows into something really massive. Um, isn't that great? <laughs> Whereas I, actually, I think that, that interpretation is born out of the fact that I don't know what a mustard tree looks like. <laughs> I've never grown a mustard tree. So... I think the first thing to notice is the kingdom isn't like the seed, but it's actually, in Jesus' telling, it's like the result of the seed being planted. And the idea of trees, um, it goes back to the Old Testament. So trees, often in the Old Testament, represent nations. And so I've given you a couple of Old Testament passages there, Ezekiel 31, Daniel 4. Um, <clears throat> trees often represent mighty nations. So in Ezekiel 31, Assyria is described as being this absolutely enormous tree. And Israel is also there as a tree, um, the cedar of God. Um, but the cedar of God, which is Israel, could not rival this massive tree uh, of Assyria. And so eventually God says in Ezekiel 31 that he's going to destroy Assyria for her pride. Uh, in Daniel 4, there's a similar sort of story where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he sees this enormous tree stretching into the heavens, which I think represents his kingdom. And the tree gives shelter to many types of birds. Again, that links to what Jesus is saying here in this parable about the birds coming. And this tree represents his rule and his kingdom, which is eventually torn down by God. 
So all this kind of idea of trees representing mighty nations, birds representing people coming to take shelter in these nations, this is all going on in people's minds. The bigger the tree, the more powerful, the mighty the nation is. And so Jesus says, um, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in the ground, and it grows to be this tree, and the uh, the birds of the air come and dwell within it. How big do you think a mustard tree is? about 12 foot it's not that big a bush it is it's a bush yeah how big is a cedar yeah like 100 and something foot so the kingdom of heaven like to us we say oh a tiny seed grows into a massive tree it grows into a tiny bush compared to the other nations and so what seems to us like a triumphant parable it's like wow enormous growth there is enormous growth and that's part of it but it's never going to look impressive compared to the other nations and so if you are already dreaming of the kingdom of God and you think it's going to be about Israel being established as the mightiest of all the nations and it may include war and it may include uh, taking over other nations Jesus is like oh there's going to be growth (laughs) but it's always going to look unimpressive actually so do you see how understanding that just changes the way that you approach the the, the, the parable. Jesus is talking about massive growth, but he's saying don't measure it in the world's eyes. The kingdom is always going to look unimpressive, but still what happens? The birds still come and they find the shelter in it. So actually it's still going to have this glorious, beautiful effect, but you need to actually give up any negative or any particular ideas that you have of the kingdom being this mighty, victorious um, sort of thing that wins victory through warfare. That's not what it's going to look like. It's going to be way more unimpressive than that, but it's still going to have a powerful effect on the nations. Do you see? That's actually quite a lot more subversive, I think. Um, So the idea of growth is still there, but in a way that challenges people's expectations. Okay, the second one. Can someone read verse 33? Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast of a woman using making bread. Even though she put all the yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Okay, great. So, uh, one particularly well-known commentator, he uh, talks about this and he's, just, he's got like a really long section where he basically says, this, the point of this parable is all about the Holy Spirit being the leaven that brings change in the life of the Christian. Oh, great, that preaches really well. Is that what's going on here in the passage? I don't think so. What's this about? It's about the kingdom of God, yeah. And it's surrounded by other things about the kingdom. So I don't think this is talking... Like, that just demonstrates how easy it is to spiritualise and personalise a parable. Actually, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God in all these contexts. I mean, he literally says the kingdom of heaven is like 11. So like, this is talking somehow about the kingdom. And what's going on here? Um, well, something small again kind of like the mustard seed is being put into something big like this sort of mass of flour and then it has an effect on it which is growing developing um but the weird thing is that often when leaven is used in scripture it's used in a negative sense so beware the leaven of the pharisees or paul talks about sin and leaven um the idea of unleavened bread is obviously quite significant to the passover um but jesus here uses it in a slightly more positive way and he talks about the fact that there is going to be um, an effect there is a positive effect and actually maybe there's an ambiguity in it because some people think that the kingdom is a very negative thing 
maybe Jesus is sort of playing into that a little bit and saying some people will think oh leaven equals bad what Jesus is doing is is wrong and we'll reject it but he's saying actually it will have a positive effect and I suppose in Jesus mind the the fruit shows the goodness in the in the long term so I think he's playing with those kind of ideas yeah can someone read verse 44 Fantastic. What's this parable about? Actually, this one isn't. Um, it's, no, I'm kidding. It literally says it. The, the kingdom of heaven is like, yeah, great, you got it. Um, fantastic. Great. So the kingdom of heaven is like a man who. Uh, or is it a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and covered up then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field the question is this um, what, what did the hearers need to be told, told at this point like was Jesus trying to go hey you may never have thought of this before but the kingdom is actually really valuable <laughs> so they already thought that didn't they but what were they thinking about the kingdom they had different ideas of what it would look like for the kingdom to come about. So some people were like, oh, it's about purity to the law. Some people it's about force. Um, some people it's about you know, separating ourselves off and living a completely different life. I don't think Jesus is telling this story in order to convince people, hey, the kingdom's really precious. They already knew that. Actually, he's saying you need to give something up to get it. And part of what they need to give up, I wonder if it's actually their ideas of how the kingdom was going to come about. So to those who were sort of strict on um, keeping the law, but actually were acting unjustly, maybe there's a, I think you need to give some of that up <laughs> in order to get what I'm offering. To those who thought it was coming by force, Jesus is like, no, you need to give up, you need to lay down your sword. Otherwise you're not going to be able to take hold of this kingdom that is coming in a completely different way. So I think Jesus is actually challenging people to give up, well, yes, anything and everything. And I think it's right to apply it to wealth and anything that stands in the way of us taking hold of the kingdom of God. But I think one of the things that Jesus is trying to challenge here is people's already uh, held preconceptions about what the kingdom is going to be like. I think he's essentially saying, give up your preconceived ideas of what the kingdom will be like. And the tragedy of it is that some people could hear this parable and not like it and cling on to their ideas in a way that rejects Jesus and miss out on the treasure that they're actually already longing for. So can you see how just reading the parables in that kind of way helps us to think, well, what was Jesus confronting there initially in the people who were hearing it? How were they hearing it? How was it challenging them? And I picked three of the easier parables there. I mean, maybe you didn't think they were easy, but okay. there are some that are really complex and I have no idea what to do with. Um, but I just always go, kingdom of God. <laughs> that helps. But, yeah, sure, go for it. And I don't know if this is sort of Western mindset, but you, you look for something and, and you sort of have this thing of you look for something, you find it mm. and usually that's the end point so you look for something, you find it, you take it you found the treasure in the thing <clears throat> yeah. but here it goes on and so you reburies it to sell it to buy it Huh, yeah. What's that about? Is that about legitimacy? Well, that tells me that you're, you're a thief and, uh, and that if you found something in someone else's field, you'd nick it. Um, but no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I think. But, 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 exactly, but it's exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think there is something about um, 
There's something about honour, probably. There is something about the land. Um, think about the fact that, I mean, obviously, like we care about the land that we live in, but we don't feel like the land that we live in was promised to us by God. And so you think about all the Old Testament rules about land and um, how you weren't allowed to take land from other people and all the boundary markers over lands. Like, they really cared about this because they, the land was so precious. It had a particular... Um, a precious place in, in Jewish thinking. And so the idea, if you find something on someone else's land, that does belong to them and it's sacred. And given this land is somehow gov governed by God, I think you would feel a fear of taking it. Um, and so I think, I think Jesus is playing with those kind of ideas about the land. And so if you really want to take this thing that has been promised to you in the land, and I think he's tying ideas of kingdom and land and Israel altogether there uh, then it's going to require you doing it in an honourable way um, and to do it in an honourable righteous way means that you're going to have to give up other things to take it so I think he's playing with the ideas of what, what a righteous response would be as well yeah yeah. there is a point though when you're saying my husband's a thief I mean you don't have to reveal anything like that Do you want me to turn off the recording? Right. I... <laughs> Hang on a second. What's interesting is in interesting of obviously he found it, he put it, and then he hid it. Yeah. So he there is a sneakiness about it, and there's an honour about it, and like I think, I think Jesus is just getting people to think through their motives and challenging them at various levels. And like I said, like don't feel like we have to, we don't have to like nail every point. I think sometimes the point of these parables is it does make different people respond different ways. So the fact that just to characterise you, you might say, "Well, I just would have stolen it," and you're saying, "Oh, I would have gone and told the other person so that they could benefit." Like it draws out different things in our hearts. And I think actually in a crowd, part of the point of the parable is that it does make people <laughs> think. <laughs> Absolutely. Part of the point is that it does challenge everyone to think about how they respond differently to this idea. And Jesus doesn't say, "Oh, and the one right way to do it is this." Although I think he does hint at that. Um, yeah, I think he is saying that yours. Actually, not even your response, but like, the response of buying the land is the better way to do it. Uh, give up everything. But I think he does leave an ambiguity to get everyone to examine what's going on in their own hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask a mm. question? You might have time to answer. About a very difficult parable about an agent who was dismissed by his boss. Yeah. And he forgave the money that was owed to his boss. Yeah, yeah. And his boss said, you did a good trick there. Well done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know when I said I don't know what to do with every parable? Like, that's the one. That is the one that really bugs me. I, I've heard lots of approaches to it, and I don't really know. Um, I find it a really tricky one. I, I mean, I think, I, think, I think Jesus is encouraging creativity. Um, but it, sound, it does sound a bit manipulative, doesn't it? I just wonder whether he'd actually been robbing the guy. He didn't really owe the master that much. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, I do think there are probably all sorts of dynamics of justice and injustice in there. Um, um, yeah, I don't think I'm going to give you a very good answer on that right no, now. I, I think I need to think the one through. I love the fact that you asked the question thinking, he probably doesn't have a good answer to that. I think that's, that's a good rule of thumb. <laughs> that is a tricky one. I need to think about that further. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Around... Um, what, what he says around the back of 
you need to be selfish to enter the kingdom of God because if you look at the parable, the one about um, finding treasure and something else around, mm. obviously there's a sort of uh, selfish yeah, yeah, sure. multiple way. It, 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 it just that plans for itself. Right. And, and get, get access to the treasure. Yeah. But also the parable, I'm not sure which you've got um, cost it's in. Uh, mm. About um, the bride and the bridegroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they're not willing to give oil to anyone else. Yeah. For themselves, the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that kind of a selfish motive? Great. Well, this actually touches on um, something that I think is a broad um, issue with the way we interpret the parables, which is that we always go. We, we tend to interpret them individualistically. Um, so we think, a man did X. I am a man, so this is telling me about how I should act as an individual. Whereas I think Jesus is often, like the man often represents Israel as a nation. So I think, uh, and, and that's tied up in the idea of kingdom. So a kingdom is not a kingdom of one, like a kingdom is, is related to nation. So I think Jesus is often confronting a whole nation about how they respond. So, so the kind of questions of, uh, what do I do in the case of the wedding and the, or the bridegroom or those sorts of things or you know, what would I do if I found uh, an, a piece of um, jewellery or something in someone's land um, those are valid questions to ask but only in so much as I am part of a bigger thing, a nation and I think it's more actually about how a nation um, acts in the light of the promises of God and those sorts of things so um, this isn't answering your question um, but just to highlight something I think part of the problem is that I often focus on individual ethics and individual actions where I think Jesus is challenging the whole nation and the whole people of God and some of those people of course don't most of those people don't have the ability to change the way that their leaders <laughs> um, act as well which I think is why Jesus often gives his most harsh uh, comments to the leaders those in the power uh, uh, with the ability to change things um, and Jesus often tells the most challenging parables towards them and the most life-giving parables towards the normal people um, and I think that's an interesting sort of dynamic to, yeah. Um, on this one, this parable of the um, one about the storm, about the treasure, it's <coughs> saying the kingdom of God is like the treasure. Yeah. And then, and the response is that yeah. everybody does. It doesn't tell you about how valuable that field was. It doesn't tell you about whether no. he did say or not. Yeah. The treasure in your field. He just has to sell everything he had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the, the sacrifice yeah. to gain the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think sometimes it also, just going back to what you were yeah. saying earlier, that you try and get a parallel parable to answer everything, mm. and actually it's just a mode of teaching one thing. Mm. So if you, if you were teaching, you'd use an example, mm. but you wouldn't say, oh, well, that answers the question of poverty. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a specific teaching tool, yeah. um, not the answer to everything. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think I would say, um, and with this we'll, we'll move on to the next bit, but um, uh, yeah, I, I think this is not to say I don't care about detail in interpretation. I absolutely do. Detail is really important. And there are some readings of the parables that are clearly wrong. <laughs> um, but I think actually... Um, I, I think Jesus probably told parables different ways, different times, to evoke different reactions in the crowds, and they had similar ideas and probably had different responses. And I think they're more about what they make you feel and what they bring out of your heart um, that show whether you're actually closer to the kingdom or moving further away from the kingdom, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. So uh, let's, let's just touch on the signs then, um, because I'm aware we've only got a few minutes left. <coughs> 
there's loads that we could say on all of this and of course we haven't touched on any of Jesus' actual teaching like his formal teaching on the law or um, uh, sorry, 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 I get it um, uh, any stuff on the law or um, Sabbath or food rules or anything like that we haven't looked at Jesus' death or resurrection uh, so there's tons that we could cover um, but let's end with the signs because I think that these are a nice counterpoint to his formal teachings and his stories. And like I said, Jesus said, go out and proclaim the gospel with your words and then demonstrate it through actions. And I think often when we look at the miracles uh, in the gospels, the way, and none of us would articulate it like this, but I think we often think, oh, this just shows how caring and kind Jesus was to people, like how nice that he healed people. And that's absolutely true. It does reveal the compassion and the power of Jesus. Um, but also they are, they're not just miracles, they're signs. And a sign points to something. And uh, driving here today, like I had to look at signs so that I knew where I was going. And just acknowledging, oh, there's a sign there and they're not following it, like I wouldn't end up here. <laughs> like you have to see the sign and go, what's it pointed to? I'm gonna, I'm gonna head in that direction. And so when we look at the signs, um, sometimes they are referred to as miracles, but I, I find the word sign way more important. And I always ask myself, what is this sign pointing to? Uh, what is it telling us? In other words, I think there is a typically a narrative function to all of the signs. Uh, and often what we do is we read them and we go, uh, we ask questions like, uh, could we expect that today? How much should I expect healing today? What would it look like for me to pray for people today? And, and we ask those kind of questions, whereas actually I kind of want to discipline myself to say, no, why, why is this recorded? What does it want to tell me about Jesus and about the kingdom that he has come to bring? And that's my starting point. All those other questions are important, but what's the sign pointing to is my first question. So, um, what do the signs tell us about the king and the kingdom? So when we're looking through um, the Gospels, I think sometimes, like with the parables, we can look at the episode itself and see, are there any clues here? Um, Jesus heals someone, does it say, uh, and this fulfilled X? Um, uh, how do people respond? Um, what do, how do they interpret the parable? How does the author want, uh, sorry, the sign, how does the author want us to um, interpret it? Look at the wider setting. Again, what is around it? Um, is the is the sign, the, the miracle, next to a bit of teaching? Um, and if so, are those things meant to sort of mutually interpret one another? Um, who did Jesus perform the miracle to? Uh, was, it, was it in private? Was it before rulers? Um, was it very public? Uh, was it in response to a plea? Uh, did Jesus pick the person out of the crowd? Like, what's going on there? And what do these details tell us about what Jesus is trying to communicate through the sign. Um, are there friends or enemies around? Is it in the city? Is it in a small village? Is it a particular season or a festival? That's an important thing. Uh, uh, we were talking earlier about, um, not a, a miracle, but, um, but when Jesus makes a certain claim about himself, actually in John's Gospel, um, he does it at a particular feast where people were celebrating a particular idea. And so when he says this phrase or he does this particular thing, what, what's the resonance already going on? Is Jesus connecting to a particular cultural moment? Um, and what does that tell us about the king and the kingdom? Look at Jesus' wider ministry. Does the miracle shed any light on another theme in Jesus' teaching? Uh, I mentioned that when we were looking at Mark, um, blind Bartimaeus and the teachers of the law uh, both refer to Jesus one way. Bartimaeus gets healed 
and he restores his sight, the teachers get hardened in their lack of sight, right? So, so sometimes a physical um, sign points to a spiritual reality in that sense, and they can often be put next to each other. Um, and then look at the use of Old T Testament in imagery. So does the miracle include any references to Old Testament themes and prophetic promises? Obviously we've got promises like in Isaiah about people being healed and restored and set free and that I think is largely there. But you know when Jesus spits on some mud and rubs it in someone's eyes, what, what does the mud represent? Like, I think we're meant to go back to the Old Testament and think Oh, is this like a recreation moment of God making something out of the ground? I think, like these kind of ideas, anything that seems symbolic of the law or the, the temple system that Jesus either uses or subverts in his healing miracles, they all point to something about the kingdom. So if we had time, uh, and maybe you want to do this yourself, it would be worth looking at some of these passages in Mark 11, uh, John 6 and John 9, and looking at some of these signs, so the cursing of the fig tree, the feeding of the 5,000, and the healing of the blind man, and asking yourself questions like, why? What do these things point to? And what can I tell from the stuff that's around it, or the way that it's heard or interpreted? And I think you'll find in each of those cases that actually it wasn't just a nice that he didn't just feed someone because <laughs> they were hungry. Actually, it reveals something significant about Jesus, and I leave that to you to work out yourself. But let me just end by giving us these five categories of signs and just unpacking a little bit um, about what they tell us. And if we had time, <clears throat> I'll get you doing some group work, but... Um, so, physical healings. So this box down here. Um, of course, there are plenty of physical healings in the Gospels, um, but there's this one particular one in Luke chapter 8. So if you turn there, we'll move quickly. <clears throat> we won't read it, but Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 43 to 48. <clears throat> Okay, so Jesus is heading on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, and this woman pushes through the crowd, and she has had bleeding since the, for 12 years, which actually is the same age as the daughter that he's going to go and heal. Um, so there's just all sorts of... I think actually I preached about that last time I was up here. Check out the podcast. Um, there's loads going on in this passage. But one of the striking things about it is that this lady who's experienced bleeding should have been separate from the crowd. Everyone she pushed through and touched would have become tainted by her ritual impurity. Not sinful impurity, ritual impurity. And she reaches out and touches Jesus. And in that moment, according to Leviticus 15, he should have been made unholy. Instead, she gets made holy. And this, like we read that, we're like, what an amazing healing. Like, that's incredible that that happened with her body. But actually, this is bigger than just a healing of a body. Because this lady, because of her ritual impurity for 12 years, had not only had a health problem, she had also been isolated from society, probably cut off from her family. We don't know if she was married or not. Um, chances are she wasn't, and probably wasn't able to get married um, because of this, this impurity that just ruined every part of her life. She couldn't go into the temple to worship. She had this stigma attached to her. So, like, everything about her life, Life was ruined by this illness and in that moment it wasn't just like her health improved every part of her life was restored which tells me that the signs of physical healing are often point to something far far deeper than just God caring about our bodies that's radical enough but actually he comes to restore everything that is lost and I think that's a beautiful powerful message I said earlier about that word Hebrew word shalom peace doesn't just mean the absence of conflict it actually means fullness wholeness everything being in its right place everything being connected and as it's meant to be and I think this tells me that under the kingship of God under his rule and reign everything is perfect 
And that's what we long for, a day when that will be the case. Everything is restored. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Actually, Jesus says, verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Uh, go in peace. Well, your faith has healed you, some translations say. The Greek word is actually sozo, your faith has saved you. Because <laughs> salvation is not just something that happens you know, to, to do with our eternal destiny. It's about all of us being put right again. And so Jesus, by healing this woman, um, talks about the fact that God is actually restoring, he's in the process of restoring everything that was lost. Make sense? <clears throat> okay, there's loads more we can look at in that. Um, the next bit's in John, so actually I'm not going to read it, because um, that's cheeky. But, um, but raising the dead. Um, the story of raising of Lazarus. Um, Jesus raises this guy from the dead, and it's not just a nice thing to do, <laughs> is that? <laughs> but it's a sign. It points to something. And Jesus says, and I promise I won't like, say too much about this, because it's not my, uh, my book. But actually the point is, um, that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So the, this general Pharisaic view that people had at this time, the general Jewish view, was that the resurrection of the dead was something that would happen when the Messiah came at the end of all things. And so Jesus, when he's talking to Lazarus' relatives, he says, do you believe that he'll raise again from the dead? And they give the good Jewish answer. Yes, I believe that at the end of all time, you know, he will be raised again from the dead. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, if I had that diagram, you know, this bit has broken into here. Uh, I have come and I will raise him now as a sign of what will actually happen for all creation. So again, Jesus' sign is not just a nice thing, it points to the whole thrust of his ministry. He is coming to resurrect the dead. Make sense? <laughs> Seven minutes. Whew. Okay, nature miracles. Uh, there are loads of miracles where Jesus interacts with the natural world and does stuff that should not be normal. Um, Actually, let's open it up. Mark 4. <coughs> Mark 4 and verse 35. So here's Jesus. Um, he goes on a boat. Famous story. A storm arose. The waves are breaking into the boat. Uh, he's asleep. <laughs> and they wake him up going, like, we're about to die. You don't you care about us. Uh, and Jesus says, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And he said, why are you so afraid? Um, and what's their response verse 41 they were filled with great fear and said to one another who is this that even wind and sea obey him and I think in this moment Jesus again is not just doing something nice for his seasick friends <laughs> rather he's demonstrating something powerful about who he is he does what only the creator is able to do and in the Old Testament the sea represents chaos it represents disorder. It represents everything that stands against the goodness of God. So think about, um, even, the, even in the Torah, what you have the separation of the waters there at the beginning. And then what happens in Noah? They come back together. And there's this sea, this flood, the, the world's return to chaos. And God has to rescue people out of the chaos. Um, you get to Exodus. And how do the people get out of Egypt? Through the parting of the sea. God shows his power over these, these things of chaos. Uh, read in Job, read in the Psalms. Again and again, the sea is referred to as this sort of this chaotic force that stands against the goodness and the kingdom of God, which is why in Revelation, where it says there is no sea, it doesn't mean, oh, 
sad for you who like beach holidays, it's actually saying there's no chaos. There's nothing standing against the perfect good rule and reign of God in the new creation. And so when Jesus calms the sea, he does what only God himself can do as a sign of saying, I am the one who is going to calm all the chaos, everything that stands against the goodness of God. And the people spot that and they go, who is this man? (laughs) And they recognise that he is doing what only God himself could do. If you had time, you could look at Amos 4, which unpacks that a little bit more. And there are plenty of other nature miracles we could look at as well, but uh, we won't. Again, food miracles. Um, I've given you the example of the wedding at Cana there uh, in John 2. There are plenty of others as well, the feeding of the 5,000, these sorts of things. Um, I think the food miracles are signs. Again, it's not just, oh, you're hungry? Boom, like, I can give you something to deal with that. I think they're signs, they point to something. What do they tell us about the king and the kingdom? I think they tell us that he, he, he's inviting us to a feast. And so Jesus didn't only miraculously feed people, he also ate with people regularly. And he taught parables about meals. And he's drawing together themes that run right the way through the prophets about this idea of the great eschatological banquet, which is that at the end of all things, God is inviting us to feast at this wedding supper with him. And in his little ways, whether it's gathering around a table with people who society said he shouldn't be eating with, uh, or whether it's actually him miraculously providing food for people who had no food, I think Jesus is saying you can get a little taste of that messianic banquet now. So again, not just a nice sign, a sign that demonstrates what God is about in the world. He is coming to feed the hungry and he's going to do that in an eternal way. Think about the the story again in John 6. Sorry Tom, but like um, the feeding of the 5,000, it's in others as well, but in John it's really explicit. He said, oh you got food from Moses, yeah he did a miracle, but like you had to eat that and then go back the next day for more and more and more. I am the bread of life. I'll kind of feed you in a deeper way. He promises water that if you drink this water, sorry again John 4. Um, Should I just do next month now? (laughs) Great, yeah next, brilliant, glad I could help. Um, Like John 4, I can offer you water that means you're never going to have to come back to this well again. And all this kind of feeding language is pointing to the messianic banquet that is to come. Uh, Read Isaiah 25 and Revelation, it's glorious. Uh, And then the casting out of spirits as the final... Final, final thing in my notes I got my plan was to get you doing those first four as group work and then I put uh, I will do exorcisms by which I meant uh, <laughs> I meant I would unpack that one <laughs> not that I would but you know <laughs> maybe at the end um, so casting out spirits again it's not just a nice thing that Jesus did like people are troubled let's, let's, let's deal with that it points to something significant and I think it points to a number of significant things one Jesus' power over the other powers um, he is far greater and they have to bow the knee whether that is fleeing going into pigs who fall off a cliff whatever it's, it's that Jesus is powerful and more powerful than the powers that hold us captive but also I think what it's a sign of is that the real evil is not Rome it's not Babylon it's not another nation it's not flesh and blood there is something beneath that that is captivating all of that and that's what Jesus came to deal with So when Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly realms, he's he's drawing that idea from Jesus. He's recognising that, uh, yes, sure, we may have enemies in this life, but Jesus didn't come and actually confront Rome. You think of much that Jesus said about Rome at all. He really didn't. He did talk to the religious leaders in Israel, but he was essentially saying, you are the sons of, again, John, John 8, you are the sons of your father who is 
the devil. And so Jesus is just reframing the debate and showing that actually what I've come to do is not just kick out some human rulers, but to deal with the evil that is animating them. And he does that by casting out demons and actually giving his disciples the power to do the same. The clash of kingdoms is not Rome versus Israel, but actually Israel versus the heart of evil. And Israel's main en- enemy is actually the Satan. And so when Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty, by the, finger, by the finger of God, I cast out spirits, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that idea of the finger or the hand of God goes back to Exodus, where God released his people from oppression. And he's saying, I'm doing that. But this time it's not Egypt. This time it's not Rome. It's actually something deeper than that. It's, it's, it's the power of Satan. Yeah, there's loads more that we could say about that. But I guess what I want to leave us with then is this sense, and we will wrap up. And I haven't left any more time for questions because your questions are too hard. And I thought if I just talked at the end, then I won't have to face any more of them. But uh, that's a joke. But I'll happily like, talk, take questions at the end. But what I want to leave us with is this. When we read the Gospels and we see the sayings of Jesus and the signs of Jesus, um, they're not just nice stories. They're stories that point us to the reality of who he is and what he is doing in the world. And they're not just historic stories either, because Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And that rolls off the tongue quite easily, because it's a prayer that we're all taught to pray. But really, what would it look like if God answered that? Um, more exciting than most of my life does (laughs) I think it would look like people finding healing and wholeness and acceptance the welcome the restoration freedom from shame freedom from anxiety when we pray your kingdom come we're asking for God to do those kind of things in our day And I wrestle with the now and the not yet of the kingdom and it bothers me that I don't see as much as Jesus saw. And I long for the day that he comes back and we'll see it in full. Um, But I know that right now my task is to keep praying that same prayer and demonstrating the same thing and proclaiming the message of the kingdom. And so I just, I guess I want us to not read these stories just to, and I know we don't, but I just want to remind us, we don't just read these biographies of a man who once did and said these things. Actually, he's a person we can still have relationship with and he still calls us to call on him. He is with us to the end of the age as he sends us out at the end of Matthew uh, to go to all the nations, doing and then teaching others to do the very same things. Um, we need to trust on his presence. And, and I am learning when I pray that prayer, your kingdom come, uh, not just to pray it as a quick line and then move on to the next one, but to stop and think, what would it look like if that actually happened in this room? or in the streets I walk down, the areas of brokenness around me. Our world needs the kingdom of God. It really does. And so I'd just love to pray that, um, <clears throat> that his kingdom would come in our lives and then through our lives. And like I say, I'll happily talk at the end, but we're out of time. So let's just pray.